We're going to be in Luke chapter 3, kind of picking up from where we left off last week, which is on page 716. All right. Well, our teaching series for Advent has been called, or is called, Hopeful. The whole season is about hope. This entire season is about hope. And in week one, we talked about anticipating hope. Anticipating hope is the experience that sounds like this. It's been hard. It looks bad, but I'm hopeful, right? Uh, in other words, I'm seeing the signs of a real reason for hope, and, and it's coming soon, and so I'm already beginning to experience the emotional effects of the good thing that hasn't even happened yet. I'm anticipating hope. I'm anticipating it. And the reason for hope is very clear. It's that Christ is coming back. And so by anticipating hope, I am participating in Christ's return. By anticipating hope, I am participating in Christ's return before the hopeful event even takes place. So I'm anticipating it. Last week, we talked about the way of hope. That was week two of Advent. We looked at the story of John the Baptist as pointing people to Jesus, as paving a road to Jesus, who is the source of our hope. And the way to hope, or that road that John makes straight to the place of hope, the road is called repentance. If you were to put a road sign on that road, you would name it, this is Repentance Road, because that's the way to hope. Um, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the message last week was that the way of hope is repentance. That's the way you get there. I noted that repentance for has a long time lived in the doghouse out in the side yard. Repentance has been associated with guilt and angry preachers and your worst sins that you're embarrassed about. But that's not the full story. Repentance leads us to hope. Repentance is the way to hope. So we need to embrace repentance, not as a one-time thing, but as an ongoing lifestyle in order to experience the fullness of the hope that God has to give to us. Today we're going to, um, look, we're going to continue to look at the story from John, uh, John's life, Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 3, the story of John the Baptist. And my goal today is to show how the prophet John, John the Baptist, pushes hope to action in order to spark hope in others. I want to show you how he pushes hope to a place of action so that it sparks or births hope in others. In other words, today we're going to talk about how to make hope tangible, how to translate hope, which is, what is hope? Is it an emotion? Is it a feeling? Is it a state of being? It's nebulous. But how to translate hope into something tangible, something you can see and touch and even taste, all right? So let's look together at Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, page 716 in the Bibles that we handed out. A little bit from last week, and then we'll jump into what comes next. Chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, the tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, okay, we explained all that last week. In summary, you could say, into a culture of corruption and tragic failure, both in state and religious organizations, <laughs> the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the desert. Okay. Background, chaos, institutional chaos, religious and governmental 
But then the word of the Lord comes to John in the wilderness. Verse 3, he went into all the country around the Jordan, which is a river, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, so what was that all about? Why is he preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? Well, Luke, who's writing the story, wants to make sure he's providing the right context and understanding for what is happening here. And so Luke quotes a Hebrew prophet from about a thousand years prior, a guy named Isaiah. This is what's in verse 4. As it is written in the book of the words Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain shall and hill made low, all the crooked roads shall become straight, and the smooth or the rough ways made smooth. And all the people will see God's salvation. Why is John baptizing people out in the wilderness? Luke, not even a Jew himself, says, well, look at the Jewish prophets. They explained what's happening now uh, through John the Baptist. He's making a way to God. He's making a way to salvation. He's pointing out the way to hope. And that way is, is repentance. That's the way to get there. It's acknowledging I'm not in charge. God's in charge. I'm not God. God is God. It's not about me. It's not about my preferences. This is what repentance is. It's about God. It's about his plan. It's about what he wants with my life and with my resources. Repentance is saying, I'm sorry, I was wrong, I'm turning around, I'm changing my mind, I'm returning my ultimate allegiance to you, God, it's been hanging out with me way too long, I'm going to put it where it should be, to God and to God's kingdom. That's repentance. Ongoing um, discipline and practice for, for Christians. To continually be saying, man, again, again, I'm thinking it's all about me. I'm going to repent again to aligning myself with the Lord. Now, what's somewhat surprising is that all these people are coming out to the wilderness to be baptized by John. Somebody asked me this week, how many people were coming out? And I don't see any way that we would know how many, but Luke says there are crowds Crowds of people hiking out into some wilderness to find this man to be baptized. A second surprising thing is how John greets the crowds when they get there. He says, welcome everyone. No, actually, he doesn't say that. He says, I'm so glad you came to today's baptism. There's complimentary coffee in the cafe. You're welcome to come on in. Put your feet in the river. It's really nice. Take a seat. I hope you're comfortable. Nope, he doesn't say that. This is what he says. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him. They are coming to be baptized by him. You'd think he'd be stoked about it. You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Several years ago, uh, my son and I went out to the Fickworth farm here in Lincoln. They've got a piece of property that they, well, they, got a, they, they do rice and, and um, walnuts. And... Uh, he, Walt had, Walt had built this burn pile over a long time. This burn pile was the size of like a small house. And he, so he invited us out. The weather was apparently good. And we were going to like light this thing on fire. And it, and it, it promised to be a good show. And so um, we went out there. And as the edge of the burn pile sort of spread to the middle and the intensity of the fire increased, all kinds of little scurrying and slithering things started like trying to escape the wrath that was to come, right? We saw, all, we saw snakes come out and skunks come out and a raccoon flew out and a couple of rabbits are flying out. There'd be this sort of initial exodus and then you'd think it was over and then the fire would apparently get to a place that was too hot for them to handle and then they would, another little guy would some, come scur scurrying out. 
Um, it was quite a show. Even Cal Fire showed up in a helicopter to make sure everything was good. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, whole neighborhoods of little critters living in that burn pile for a while. Um, and, and so John's greeting of this crowd as a brood of vipers fleeing the wrath to come. His, his question is, his question seems to be about their motive. That's what, that's what John seems to be addressing, whether or not their repentance is authentic. Why are you coming out here? Why are you running away from the, the heat? Is it true repentance or is this just another religious experience for you? Selfishly motivated like so much more of the other things in your life. So this is what he says in verse 8. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That's his message. Who warned you to come? Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Kind of a strange phrase. Um, Other translations which work towards the general meaning, not so much a word-for-word translation, have it like this. This will be on the screen. In other words, do something to let me see that you have turned away from your sins. Do something. Or prove by the way that you live that you have repented of your sins and you have turned to God. John the Baptist is kind of saying, hey, just show me something. Show me that this isn't just another iteration of your same kind of escapism that has been sort of characterizing your journey with God for so long. This is important. One of the things that John the Baptist seems to confront is people's complacency about injustice. He's confronting their complacency about injustice, which is rooted in and fueled by a false sense of spiritual security. These folks are pretty sure they're okay. And yet, he is confronting a glaring omission in their lifestyle, which is complacency uh, when it comes to situations of injustice. It's their complacency about injustice around them. That's the problem. Why this lack of concern? Why this urgency? Now, he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And then he says, I do not begin, and don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children, of Ab- children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. In other words, the whole axe at the root of the tree thing is like, it's time, all right? And unless some change happens, unless some fruit comes from this coming out into the wilderness to be baptized thing, it, you'll, your, your repentance will be shown to be um, empty and, and therefore useless. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't say to yourselves, we're okay because Abraham's our dad or our great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. It's almost impossible for us to get our heads around uh, what's going on, this sort of the spiritual dynamic that John is addressing, but let me kind of try to give us a a glimpse of it. John's challenge uh, to the people who are coming to be baptized is to demonstrate with their life that their repentance is sincere. That's the challenge. And he anticipates that they're going to resist his call to live differently by justifying themselves as those who have been connected to forever this man named Abraham. And and this is important to see that as long as people have known of Yahweh, the God of the Bible, as long as people have even been aware of him, um, the God of the Hebrews, the only people who even had hope of being saved or rescued by this God was the Jews, were the Jews. 
The only people who even could conceive of a situation where you could be at peace with God after you died were the Jews, were the people who could literally trace their ancestral lineage all the way back to one man named Abraham, who was the first person in this long line of people that God, the God Yahweh, calls to be his own. So it, it translates to this. You're either related to Abraham or you join those who are related to Abraham or you're out. That's the situation and it has been for thousands of years. For thousands of years. Can you even imagine that? There is no other, there is no other alternative view for thousands of years. For this group of people, known as the Hebrew people or the people of Israel, salvation is and always has been absolutely tied to a biological link to one dude. So if you were a son or a daughter of Abraham, you were good. And if you weren't, you weren't. This is part of why uh, the gospel spend so much time, it's not the only reason, but it's part of why they spend so much time writing out these long genealogies, connecting Jesus all the way back to Abraham, because this is part of his credibility in the eyes of the Jewish people. Over time, however, what should have been a truth to be thankful for, what should have been received as a gift to be used to bless others, had become a point of pride for the Jews, or worse, had become like the ultimate grandfather clause, leading to a sense of spiritual entitlement and apathy about injustice. In other words, the Jews are riding on the coattails of Abraham. They're saying, look, I'm the son of Abraham, meaning I'm like the great, 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 great grandson of Abraham while at the same time neglecting God's words to Abraham, which were, you will be blessed to be a blessing. You will be blessed instrumentally. I'm, blessed. I'm choosing you, Abraham, not so you can walk around and say, I'm chosen and all my, all my kids are chosen. That's totally missing the point. I'm choosing you to demonstrate my love and presence to the world. I'm, I'm, I'm blessing you to be an instrument of peace and justice in the world. I'm, I'm, I'm like going to show through your family what justice looks like in the world. And they're totally missing it when you take that. It's not, a, it's, not a, um, it's not an entitlement. It's a responsibility. And yet they're treating this as some sort of entitlement and rooting their apathy about injustice in their ancestral position. So when John the Baptist says, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham, he's essentially saying to these self-assured Jews, it doesn't matter who you're related to. I don't care who your grandfather was, which is shocking. It's shocking. Culturally, there's really no category for that because in a sense, that is all that has mattered to these people for thousands of years. That's all that has mattered. It's been their identity. It's been their source of spiritual security. Well, what tribe are you a part of? Well, we're part of the tribe of Benjamin. Hey, you know, like, it's like it's all that matters to them. Well, if that doesn't matter now, according to John, what does matter according to John? And the answer to that question is repentance that results in doing good. That's what matters. So he's really shifting the perspective on what counts, what is significant, what is legitimate in terms of spirituality. John says it's repentance that bears fruit that matters, and very specifically, it's repentance that expresses itself in justice and in generosity. 
That's what matters. Repentance, showing itself to be true and real through acts of justice and generosity. John actually has to qualify what he means by repentance. He has to explain to them what he means by turning back to God. Because for so many generations, people had repented whenever the fire got too hot. Then they just leave the burn pile. And they're only thinking about their personal um, survival. They're only thinking about their own life. They're not really changing the way they're living. There's, no, there's been no uptick in justice for the oppressed or for the widow. There's been no increase of generosity to the poor or to the immigrant. They just repented in order to escape personal judgment, but not to address injustice, not to restore the broken, and certainly not to change the world. And so he says, John the Baptist says, the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. All right. You with me? Okay, good. Uh, let me jump over for a second into kind of a sidebar because I, I feel like I need to address what, one of the more complicated um, issues in Christian theology. And I say more complicated or more difficult because it's clear that over time, uh, many have struggled to understand and even more importantly, many have struggled to live in the balance and the, and the health of this issue. The issue that I'm talking about posed as a question is this. How is a person who has sinned against God like all of us, made acceptable to God? Or as some put it, um, how is one saved? How is one saved? The question is a major theme in Paul's writings. It's been a major question throughout church history. And it's a very practical question. It's not just one of these sort of, uh, it doesn't matter, theology questions. No, it's a super practical question, whether you realize it or not, because it affects the way we live our lives, the way we manage our money, and the way we steward our time. Simply stated, the question is this, do we receive salvation from God because of what God has done or because of what we do? Is peace with God a gift that you're given or is it something that you earn through doing the right things? It's a big question with tons of fascinating church history behind it and some of the best Christian minds have addressed it in detail. Practically speaking, I want to say that the dangers come when we run off the road in either direction. In other words, it's spiritually destructive, and it is also unbiblical to believe or to say that grace doesn't matter, that it's not about grace. And it is also spiritually destructive, and it happens to also be unbiblical to say or believe that what we do doesn't matter. In other words, people want to make this an either-or issue, and it's just not that simple. It's more nuanced than that. Here's an attempt at a summary statement of what the Bible says about this. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and his work, not in our own works, and our faith in Jesus and in his work is proved genuine by what we do, by the way we live. We're saved by grace through faith, not by works. And if your faith doesn't generate good, then the Bible seems to question the sincerity and the reality of your faith. 
or to go back to John the Baptist's message, repent and be baptized. Why? For the forgiveness of your sins and produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Like, show me that it's real. Or another translation, prove by the way that you live that you have repented of your sins or from your sins and turned to God. So we're not doing things in order to deserve God's love. No. God loves you. Nothing changes that. God's love is freely given even when we don't deserve it. Amen? And it is precisely because his love for us is undeserved that we should be catalyzed and motivated to go love other people, even maybe if they don't deserve it. This is why we should do uh, things that are disproportionately generous, because we have been the recipients of disproportional generosity ourselves. If you have any inkling of recognition of that fact that is genuine, it should move you to a lifestyle that is very uncommon. Well, she doesn't really deserve that. <gasps> you missed the point. You missed the point. So back to the John the Baptist story. We left with John essentially saying, I don't care who you're related to. Right? Your granddaddy might help you get a job, but salvation doesn't work like that. Okay, If your repentance is real, it ought to lead to good works, not just the right words. It ought to produce something tangible. And if it doesn't produce any kind of fruit, well, it's not real repentance and it's useless. Now, if this language seems strong to us, it would have sounded insanely strong to John's original um, audience. And so understandably, in verse 10, they respond to John by saying, what should we do? Like, we thought we were doing the right thing. What should we do? And then John gives a bunch of examples of what they should do, and they're super practical. And each of these examples has to do with justice and generosity. Each one has to do with justice and generosity, and I'll show at the very end here in a minute how they also have to do with hope. Verse 11, John replied, If you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Super simple, apparently remarkably challenging, huh? Verse 12, even corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized and asked, teacher, what should we do? He replied, collect no more taxes than the government requires. What should we do? Asked some soldiers. John replied, don't extort money or make false accusations and be content with your pay. So John's baptism is a baptism of repentance and the kind of action that John expects to see in the lives of those who repent, if they're for real, if they're honest, if they're genuine, if they're truthful about their repentance. The kinds of actions he expects to see are actions of justice and generosity. John is reflecting this larger biblical theme about authentic repentance showing itself in justice and in generosity. Let's break that down a little bit. For the two specific groups that he mentions, tax collectors and soldiers, these are people in positions of power, recognizable power, either with might or with money, right? And corruption is common and even generally kind of expected. So genuine repentance for these dudes means justice. You will do justice. If you're really sincere about repenting back to God, you'll do justice. Now, many of you, are in positions of authority and power at some relative level. 
uh, where it's possible, maybe it's even commonplace to exaggerate your hours, to pad your reports, because in fact, you write the reports, you're in charge, you manage others, to use funds in ways that are sort of questionably legitimate. Maybe you work with a government. Maybe you work with those that some would consider to be the enemy or the bad guys. And you've got power, and it would be easy to compromise ethically in your line of work. You know exactly how it's done. It happens all the time. It's easy. It would be easy to compromise financially in your line of work, right? Do justice. That's what he says. If you're sincere about wanting God to be in charge of your life, then do justice. Let's start there. And then to the first group, and the, the first group that he mentions is the crowd. It's all of us. And so to all of us, John speaks with absolute clarity. He couldn't be any more clear how repentance before God should affect the ways that we interact with the poor and the hungry. The poor and the hungry. Our repentance should result in generosity. We should be the most generous people. So when John's talking about the fruit, that, the fruit that should come from our repentance, please note that he's not talking about just personal, only about me, internal spirituality stuff. Did you notice that? Clearly, repentance begins in the heart, but he goes right away to, it, it, it expands, and it's about loving your neighbor. And also, please note that every single example that John gives that has to do with repentance has to do with money. Everyone, it's about money. Show me, show me with your money. And that makes sense to me because that's where the rubber hits the road, right? That's where we actually like have to put a number on a value, which otherwise is so easy to talk about. I really value this. Man, I'm so for justice in the world. I'm so like pro-immigrant or pro-poor or pro-racial reconciliation or pro-pro-pro. I got t-shirts like crazy. I raise awareness all the time. That's not what he's talking about. Show me the money. Show me with your money right? That you see and you know and you've changed and you've repented. So to sum up what John is saying to those who are coming to be baptized, a repentant heart will express itself through practical acts of justice and generosity. Right? And then finally, here's how it all relates to hope. Not only does true repentance, what we've been calling the way of hope, not only does it lead to justice and generosity, but justice and generosity is exactly what sparks hope in other people. That's exactly what sparks hope in other people. Justice and generosity are hope made tangible. Now I can actually see it. I can touch it, right? Hope is probably the most most commonly categorized as an emotion or something that we feel, it's really hard to effectively share an emotion. It's hard to give a feeling to somebody else. How do you give hope? It's ethereal. It's nebulous. It's real, but it's intangible. How do you give that away? Well, you got to make it tangible. That's how you give hope. You make it tangible. You give something tangible, and that actually does more than just share your hope with somebody else. It actually sparks new hope in them. It births hope in them. You do something tangible for a person and that, that tangible thing becomes the spark of hope. They go from, it's been hard, it looks bad, to I'm hopeful now because I just was, this new emotion 
was birthed in me when you did that tangible thing, when I saw that sign of something better that is to come. Hasn't happened yet, but that little tangible thing that you just did, that, that wakes me up to a bigger reality. You can do something physical that actually births an emotion in somebody else. And let me just wrap up with three quick stories. I recently heard a story about someone from our church um, who spent some time with family during Thanksgiving, and one of the family members is in this extended season of difficulty. And, uh, and this, this other person in the family knew about that and knew that it had been a really hard season. And this other person in the family happens to be a college student. And so when they said goodbye, this college student wrote her a note and left it on the table And in the note were all these encouraging words of hope, but also $600 of cash, which is a significant amount of money for a college student to give away. And a significant, tangible expression of hope for somebody who'd been struggling to hold on to hope for a long time. So what you have here is this student who is living the way of hope, practicing ongoing repentance. How do we know? Because he's demonstrating, it's not about me, it's not about my money. I'm I'm demonstrating with the way I'm living that I'm turning to a different value system entirely. It's God's. I'm going to do something that doesn't really make sense in the life of a college student. I'm going to give away money to somebody who's older than I am but needs the money. So you see this person living in this ongoing repentance. And then this, this ongoing repentance is producing actual fruit, something tangible. And then when that student turns his hope into action, boom, hope gets birthed in somebody else, right? Because of that tangible thing. Another story, when during like one of the most, not one of the most, it was easily the most difficult time in our life. It was when our son was just in the middle of uh, cancer treatment. We... We were in that season of life, maybe you've been there, where hope was elusive. It was a battle every day to find some kind of hope because, the, because of just the, re- the difficult reality that was just so overwhelmingly present. So no amount of teaching was birthing hope in me. No amount of inspirational music was birthing hope in me. No amount of wisdom was birthing hope in me. But through that dark time, there was a family who consistently brought us groceries They shopped for us. They just, like John the Baptist, they just took one of those difficult turns in the road and they just straightened it out. We're just going to make this part of your life to hope easier. And they dropped off groceries at our doorstep for three years. And every time, I'd get this spark of hope, you know? Tangible. I couldn't see hope. You couldn't talk me into it, but you could do these little things. You could spark hope in me. And it took something tangible. It took generosity, right? Because that's when you think, I am seen. I am known. Yeah. We're not alone. Yeah. And as you know, finally, this Christmas, we're, we're inviting us as a community into, to give generously to this organization in Auburn called Acres of Hope. It's transitional living for women and children. And and part of what makes this ministry so effective and so compelling to us is they're not just helping the homeless by feeding them, which is good and right, but they've created a plan to end homelessness 
by building these little homes in which women and their children can live for up to two years while they kind of put the pieces of their broken lives back together and uh, can actually establish some kind of situation where they can discover and rediscover hope, which has been beat out of them like the video said last week. I've been surviving on my own since I was nine. I've been thinking about that all week. It's not just raising awareness, which is probably needed and important in a lot of situations, but man, we ride that way too far. Let's stop raising awareness. Let's raise some cash, okay? Because that actually, in a tangible way that is unparalleled, can communicate to somebody who has been struggling to find any kind of hope, there is hope for you. And even if they don't see the picture, because they can't see the big picture yet, they can get the small. I can, I can, that's, that makes me hopeful. You just invite him. We want to build the 13th house on this little commune, <laughs> this little neighborhood that they've put together, uh, or help with other organizations that are. And I encourage you to consider that, as we've talked about. Friends, Christian repentance is about addressing injustice with generosity. Show me where you're working for justice. That's what John the Baptist would say. Show me where you're working for justice in your life. Show me where you're giving money away. Not that you're in general favor of being in gener generous people. Show me last month where you gave money away. And he would say, I'll show you repentance that is real and hope that is alive. That's what he would say. Yeah. I'll show you hope being experienced in a tangible way. My hope, my hope, is that this, this teaching would not be perceived as just another kind of kick in the butt to do more. My hope for this teaching is that you would see the connection between what you do and something that is almost impossible to define, which is hope being experienced in the lives of people. I want you to see that connection because that's compelling, right? That's compelling. Let's pray together. So, Lord, would you shake us free of the security of our routine, our normal, what we typically give, our, our, our regular understanding, the places in our lives where things are working great just now. They're fine. It's fine the way it is. We're, we're children of Abraham. Just help us to hold it all open as we should in this posture of repentance. It's all yours. Please give us the courage and the grace to participate in a mission that truly changes lives and changes the world. May we proclaim the coming of Christ into the world, true reason for hope, and may we demonstrate it in the way we live. Thank you so much for this community. Lord, may we join you in your mission to restore all things in Jesus' name. Amen.